0: For a few moments this morning, I just want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 1. And uh, I do so with a little bit of trepidation, I do so with a little bit of excitement, but also a little bit of awareness that this is what God has laid upon my heart. Um, During the period that I was unwell, or towards the end of that period, I began to think in terms of what. uh, I should be uh, teaching over these final few weeks of my ministry here. And uh, God brought me back to Revelation, but he brought me back to it in terms of under a heading of living, for- li- living forward, so, sorry, living life with the end in sight. And as I explained last week, uh, as I was introducing it at the nine o'clock service, that has come about, through one very real question that I've had to be fielding over some while now. Are you looking forward to your retirement? And uh, as I said last week, I wish I'd had five pounds for every time it had been asked. I'd had it asked, uh, because it was certainly a boost to the retirement fund. But that's that's it. Are you looking forward to your retirement? And uh, the answer is yes and no. But in that introduction last week, I spoke of how we are always being encouraged to look forward or we're always trying to in- anticipate, aren't we, the next big event. Once we've had one holiday, we're looking forward to the next holiday. Once we have a family, we can't wait for them to leave home. <laughs> you know, And that's the reality, isn't it? We're always looking ahead. Once we move into our perfect home we suddenly find that it's not quite so perfect and we're looking for our next perfect home. There seems to be something part of us that is a little bit dissatisfied with life and we're constantly straining to see ahead or run ahead and to know what is ahead. It's based on a phrase that comes in 2 Peter, which I spoke about last week in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. As we are people looking forward to the day of God. Paul, writing to Titus, speaks about being a people who wait, i.e. look, for the blessed hope. Now we talk about people, that we are a people of hope. And we talk about, yes, Jesse now receiving her eternal hope and her assurance there. Paul, to Titus, goes on to say what that hope is. He says, we're people waiting, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think for one moment he's encouraging us to look back to the first coming of Christ, but to look forward in anticipation to when Christ returns. So over the next few weeks, and this is where I'm feeling a little bit of trepidation, is I want to take a few snapshots from the book of Revelation, or that will be my base, but we should probably move out from there, to explore what it is to be a people looking forward or anticipating Or as Paul puts it to the church at Corinth, those who eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And I love that phrase, eagerly wait. I pointed out in the communion that we've just shared together, Paul in those words in Corinthians speaks about, yes, looking back and doing this, in remembrance, but he uses the phrase at the end, until he comes. Until he comes. There's that anticipation. So what we want to do this morning is just set the scene a little bit from Revelation chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, and you may well need your Bibles for the next 15 minutes, and I want, I am keeping my eye on the clock... Because I want us to end this morning on worship. Because, in one sense, I believe that the book, book of Revelation, there's a, there's a liturgy to it. And it draws us into the worship of heaven. Because as, as, uh, as John writes this, uh, this letter, it's punctuated with these snapshots of the worship of heaven, and it's drawn us, draws us into the glory of heaven and what is happening there. And so, and we need to remind ourselves that it was on the Lord's Day, when John was in the Spirit, that he received this revelation. It was within the context of worship. It was in that context of all-out devotion and commitment to God and a focusing upon God and upon who he is. That it's there that, that John receives this revelation. I wonder how many of us come to worship on a Sunday with that expectation in our hearts. That actually God might want to speak. God might want to reveal himself to us. God might want to open our eyes, not just to the reality around us, but to the reality of his kingdom and to the reality of his glory and to the reality of his purposes. My guess, it doesn't dawn on any of us that that might be part of God's purpose, that worship is more than just singing our songs and saying our prayers and reading our scriptures and sitting politely in our rows. But it is engaging with a living God, a sovereign God, who is Lord of heaven and of earth. And John brings us to that. So Revelation chapter 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And I'm going to move on to verse 9. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And we will stop there for this morning. So Let's set this scene. The first snap, snapshot, Is simply this it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. By the time that John wrote the book of Revelation the Roman Empire had been around for about 600 years. There would still be another 400 years before its fall. Everywhere across the Empire symbols of Rome's might splendor and power were dominating were on display. Everyone cowered before their might and their splendour. There was lions, there were eagles, there were temples, there was glorious architecture, there was strict discipline. There were many gods, but over them all there stood emperor worship, which everyone everyone was supposed to take part in. These symbols intimidated, dominated and overwhelmed everything and everyone. As John writes, the whole force of the empire is set against the church. John, we quickly learn, is exiled on Patmos, a small island off the coast of of Greece. Think Robin Island in South Africa. It was where they sent their political prisoners to last out their days. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because of his faith. He's there because he he dared to stand up to the might of Rome and declared that there is one God and one God alone and it is not the emperor. Persecution is on the rise and as we shall see later in the letter the one big question that could be asked was, will the church survive? That question is being asked today, isn't it? Let's be honest. Will the church survive? The rise of secularism and the rise of all the other isms that are going around us. And we're constantly being told, aren't we, how weak we are, how feeble we are, particularly in the West. But the opening verses tell us that John is bringing us a message that has come through a four, link chain, beginning with God, who in verse 4 is described as the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. It isn't quite what you'd expect. You'd expect who is, who was, and always will be. But he doesn't say that. It says, who is, who was, and who is to come. A God who is still active. A God who will come in the face of the might of the Roman Empire. Verse 8 follows that up. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty The next link in in the chain is Jesus Christ, described in verse 5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It brings us straight into the heart of who Jesus is, the one who is faithful in his witness, the one who has conquered death and the one who is sovereign over all. Yes, even the might of the Roman Empire. The message then comes to an angel, from the angel to John and then finally to us. It's all there in verses 1 and 2. It is a message that should be read aloud and brings blessing to all who hear it and take it to heart. Why? Because the time is near. This message is a revelation, which simply means an unveiling. An unveiling of what must soon take place that's what John is writing the book of revelation draws on a style of literature called apocalyptic so genre which has its own style conventions and symbols used elsewhere in scripture mainly in daniel and Zechariah. the key feature of ap- of ap- <laughs> you know my tongue sometimes gets twisted apocalyptic liter- literature is its claim to offer a divine perspective on history. John is showing us the world, the real world in which we live, but is he is looking at it from the perspective of heaven. He's seeing it from a different angle. How many of you have recently watched that program on TV, Earth from Space? There's four episodes of it. And it's just well worth watching just for the totally different perspective you get upon the earth. We just simply see what's around us. And we struggle to put it into perspective to what else is all around us. But as that camera draws out from the earth, you begin to see something of the perspective on earth. And the wonder and the amazement. And that's what John's doing. He's taking us out of earth. He's taking us out of the here and now. And he's bringing us a whole new perspective. And he's putting us in within the whole context of all of history. And all of God's purposes. It's important that we remember that Revelation is a letter. The whole of it. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, he says in verse 11. What we often call the letters to the seven churches in chapter 3, 2 and 3 are in fact just simply words. Words to those particular churches within in the context of a bigger letter. So he's writing a letter that he's sending out to the churches and partway through the letter he's saying, by the way, you at Laodicea, By the way, you at Pergamon, this is what the Spirit of our God says, but it's all within the context of a bigger letter. He's writing to churches that are suffering under the might of Rome, or they are compromising in a bid to avoid suffering. These are not people riding the crest of a wave, carried along with excitement, seeing lots of success, These are people who are enduring patiently. They're struggling, but they're faithful. They they are from small, weak, struggling churches, many of them poor, and they face the might of Rome. Persecution is everywhere and increasing, and sharing in the kingdom of Jesus involves sharing in his suffering. John writes as a fellow companion in the suffering. John is commanded to write on a scroll what you see. Verse 11. He's not told to write what he hears. He's told to write what he sees. This is no dictated message. Let me say that again. John is called to write what he sees. The phrase I looked appears nine times in the letter. The phrase I saw appears 30 time, 32 times throughout the letter. Have you ever tried to write or describe something that you have seen to someone else who was not there? Maybe you've got a glorious sunset that you captured. Today we'd just hold our phones up, wouldn't we, and we'd take a picture of it. But even that doesn't capture the splendour of being there, does it? It still misses something. But Have you ever tried to do that? Try writing a description of a bicycle to somebody who's never seen a bicycle. How would you begin? What would you say? What would you do? I watched the FA Cup yesterday, final. I don't think I could actually write down what I saw in the way that Manchester City played at various points in that final. It would be superlatives. Now it was the Lord's Day And John was in the spirit when he hears a sound, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Turning to see who was speaking, John sees the most amazing and glorious vision of someone like a son of man. That is someone resembling a human figure. He's borrowing an image from Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10 which we don't have time to go into, but it's there, which also supplies much of the following description that comes in this this, uh, chapter 1, but not all of it. He's standing among seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 tells us who those lampstands represent, the seven churches, but more about that next week. John in verse 13 and 18 then gives us a vision to ponder, a vision of Christ that simply blows our minds. Swords, bronze feet, white hair, sunlight, rivers, water, and so much more. Just remember what John wrote is not what he saw. Many people have tried artistically to represent this passage and it quite honestly comes out quite grotesque but my saviour is not grotesque just remember what john wrote is not what he saw what he wrote is like what he saw there are a big difference the voice like a trumpet the eyes like blazing fire the feet like burnished bronze glowing in furnace. The voice like the sound of rushing waters. His face like the shining sun in all its brilliance. John is pouring out a whole bucketful of metaphors and images to try and describe what he sees. He's trying to describe the indescribable. But this is our God. The implication is clear human language is inadequate to describe the exalted Christ. This is a picture of. Not what Jesus looks like, but who Jesus is. He's the perfect kingly priest, dressed in royal, royal robes. He's the pure and holy one, symbolised in hair as white as, as wool and as snow. And the language behind those words means the actual wool that's right at the heart of wool. And if you, you know, have somebody that's sheared sheep... I know that when you shear sheep, the wool right at the heart is is white, absolute white. He's speaking about snow that has been un, unsullied. It's not been trodden on. It's not been rained on. It's not had dirt thrown on it. It is just pure. He's speaking about the righteous judge with all-seeing eyes. He's speaking about the source of all strength. Feet in burnished bronze. He's speaking about the living word of truth, the one who spoke and always speaks. He's speaking about everlasting light. Just pause for a moment. One of the descriptions he uses is his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I love the sound of a river. It's a soundtrack to nature. As you're out walking, perhaps up in the Lake District or up in the hills, you hear it before you see it. It's never silent. Nature might fall asleep, but the river rules. And so it is in all eternity. The voice of God, the voice of our Saviour, speaks. It's always heard. It's steady. It's a soothing soundtrack to history's events. It's unfolding. The sound of rushing water. The voice that spoke and planets came into being. The voice that spoke and the earth was created. The voice that spoke and gave you and I breath. The voice that spoke and brought Lazarus out of the tomb, and the voice will say that one day will say enough and bring down the curtain on history. The voice forever speaks. The reaction of John is, is what. <coughs> the reaction of John to what he sees is instant. I fell at his feet, though dead. Is there any other action? When we grasp who Jesus really is, it knocks us off our feet. Then there comes a very touching scene. You miss it. You almost miss it in the reading of the scriptures. I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Here's John, exiled on Patmos. John, called a traitor to to the Roman Empire. John, isolated from his friends, his family. John, wondering what's happening to those he loves. John, on his own, worshipping his God. And his God comes and he puts his hand upon him. The God who has thrown him to his feet in his awesome majesty stoops down and puts his hand upon his shoulder and says, do not be afraid. This is our God. The God of splendour. But the God who comes and meets us where we are in in our need. Puts his hand upon our shoulders and he says, Do not be afraid. Why? Because I am the first and the last. John, I will have the last word. And Revelation has one message, one message alone. Because I've read the final chapter God wins. God wins. That's the message. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John, you think Rome has all the power. But I tell you, I tell you your future is not in Rome's hands. Your future is in my hands. For I am the one who is the first and the last. I am the living one. I am the one who has all authority. There's something very intimate about this action. As the one, like a son of man, introduces himself, and his first words are, do not be afraid. And his words to you this morning are, Do not be afraid. And I have to take those words for myself as well. Do not be afraid. Next week we're going to draw on that image. As we'd see two portraits of Jesus. But I know it's gone ten, but we're gonna we're gonna worship John. We're gonna worship. (laughs) mm <laughs>